Good morning, Southbridge. Hopefully you were in here at the beginning and you heard Jessica saying that uh, the month of March we're celebrating 10 years of being in existence as a church, and that is a big deal. Let me tell you why. Uh, I talked to lots of different church planters in this city and around the, around the country in different places. To even be alive after five years as a church is a, is a big deal. A lot of churches around five years closed down for whatever reasons, oftentimes painful uh, regardless of the circumstances, and we're still here, first of all. But not only that, but we're, we're not just surviving. Yeah, we can give the Lord a hand for that. Just surviving. <laughs> surviving is good. But uh, God's at work in our midst, and he's changing lives. And I'll tell you, the worship experience for me in first service, second service, weren't the same. Felt like, you know, encountered the Lord both times. But in the second service, when I came in, I just, a couple of folks, I, they caught me around. I don't usually call people out from the stage. And I was thinking about, oh, I mention folks' names or don't mention their names. And I wasn't sure. But you're always supposed to be ready to have an answer for the hope that you have. And so I saw Tommy over here worshiping. And I know that he shared with me different times the way that God's changed his life through being a part of this church. And uh, I saw the Caverleys when I came in. And I was just thinking, God, you're, you're changing. This filling my heart with joy just seeing you all and knowing some of your stories, that God's at work. And you saw we baptized people last week. Every one of those people had a story and how they got to that spot. And they were taking that step of faith. And some of you are leading, you know, we talk about having a one and you're leading different people to Christ and aren't necessarily in this church. You know, some people, there's one guy that told me a story about leading the guy to Christ who was in prison. Uh, some of you people in different cities and God's at work and he's using you and I rejoice in that, what God's doing in our church. And so on March 26th, we're going to have uh, what we're calling a celebration Sunday for our 10-year anniversary. And so you're all welcome. We want to invite anybody who used to go to our church to come back. They're, they're welcome. Uh, we'd love to just have a good time. Not necessarily celebrating us, but celebrating what God has done and making a big deal about him and then talking about what we hope and we believe that he's going to do in the next 10 years. And I'll tell you, if we go back to 10 years ago, I would have never guessed what he was going to do. People that were standing on stage last week and baptized, some of you and your story and what God's doing, uh, had no idea who you even were. And so he says in the scripture, I'm going to do beyond what you could ask or imagine. And so we're going to spend some time on the 26th asking and imagining, but knowing that he's going to do beyond that. And so we're excited for that, and you're all invited. And there was a little card that you received, hopefully on the way in, if not on the way out, that tells you some of the outreaches we're doing this month and different things you can be involved in, a worship night that's coming up. So make sure you grab one of those on the way out. But today what we're going to do is we're continuing the series we've been doing in the book of Mark. And so if you have a Bible, you can go ahead and grab one. We give ones away that look like this every week. And so you can go ahead and grab one of those on your way out if you want. But uh, we're going to be in Mark chapter 13, and we're going to cover verses 1 through 37. Now let me put that in perspective for a moment. We've been in Mark since the beginning of January. We've covered two chapters. Mark chapter 13, 1 through 37 is a whole chapter. So we're doing a month's worth of work today together. Are you guys ready? All right. We're going after it, and it's going to be live today. All right? We're going to go fast. If you're not used to listening to me and you're a guest, I always talk fast, not usually this fast. And so we're going to go after it here in a moment. Mark chapter 13, verses 1 through 37. And as you're turning there in your Bibles, let me just ask you this question. What are you anticipating in life? Maybe you're anticipating, you know, March 26th coming up, we're anticipating that as a church. What are you anticipating in your life? Maybe this week, maybe today, maybe months from now, someday in the future, your retirement's coming up, a birthday party, a vacation you had planned. What are you anticipating? There's all kinds of things in life to anticipate. I was thinking about my oldest daughter sitting here in the second row today. She knows we're talking about stuff at the end time. She's been reading Revelation. She wanted to come to this message. I remember we were anticipating going to Star Wars together. Remember that? We went to Star Wars. We were excited. We sat down. Some guy sat down next to me. He had a costume on. He was wearing a burlap bathrobe. I don't know all the characters of Star Wars, but I was thinking to myself, if I were going to make a bathrobe, where would burlap be on the material list? Like, out of the top 100 materials, it'd be like 573. Like, it's not even on the list of burlap. And I was like, this is like Yoda's older brother sitting next to me here. I don't know anything about what he's doing, but I promise he was anticipating that, that movie more than I was. 
Ever watch basketball? You watched the basketball game last night, a UNC Duke game? The UNC fans are woohoo, and the Duke fans are going, would you please be quiet? Gee. You ever see those Duke fans, though, the Cameron crazies? They look like they get bathed in something blue, and they camped out in a tent, and they dance through the whole game, doesn't matter what's happening, they're shaking their hands, they're doing all this stuff. I promise you those kids didn't do any homework that day. <laughs> Everything was about that game, the big game, their anticipation of the game. And so what are you anticipating? I think the, the ultimate picture, you know, you think about kids at Christmas time and first day of class and your first kiss and your wedding, like all these things that we can anticipate in life. But the, the ultimate picture, I think, is when you get pregnant and you find out you're having a baby. I know I'll get a little baby up here today. Nine months in your belly, this baby is there. And you think about what that's like. So you're thinking about what gender is it going to be, boy or girl? And maybe you find out the gender because we've got technology that can tell you that. Then what are we going to name him, her, whoever it is? Family name, and you can debate about all that amongst yourselves. And you know, this is a common name, that, you know, Bob, Susie. Are you going to give them some name that no one's ever heard of before? Or something that's like a combination of names. you got all this stuff, and you pray for this baby, and you paint rooms for the baby. And, you know, I remember when we had our, all of our girls, we got four girls. Each one rocked my world. I didn't have sisters growing up. I didn't know what to do with girls. When we found out that we were having Ella, our first baby, I was insecure, and I was intimidated, and I was nervous. I thought, I'm going to break her. <laughs> I don't ever want to change a diaper. I don't know what to do with any of that. And uh, I remember when I get insecure, sometimes what I'll do is I'll joke to compensate. And so the day of delivery, I remember sitting there with the doctor, and he had his scrubs on, and I had my scrubs on. So I started telling him, I'm going to scrub in, right? Like, I'm going to be part of, I'm just going to watch. Like, I can help you out. You just kind of guide me a little bit, and I'll do something. My wife did not think any of that was funny. I remember that, that Ella was breached, and so she, my wife had to have a C-section. I'd say we had to have a C-section, but I didn't do a whole lot with that. But then the next baby was going to have a C-section too because the first one was. And so I remember coming in to the operating room for her birth, and it was different. They, it, the first one was, seemed more casual, and we were in Arkansas. Maybe that's why. I don't know. But the second one, we were here, and there was a sheet that was like right by my wife's neck, and it went up to about shoulder height when I was standing up. And so I came in, and I'm just talking to her, and she asked how things were going. And so I remember looking over the sheet, I saw things you can't unsee <laughs> that moment. Parts of her body were on the outside that I'm positive aren't supposed to be on the outside. It's like just stuff there. And it's a, one time they pulled apart, it wasn't the baby, this part came out and blood came flying up towards the sheet. And I just ducked back down. It's going great, honey. Like, it's not going to watch any more of it. But the end of each one of those births, each one had their own story, each one had their own circumstances, different anticipation, different stage of life. We met a person. It wasn't just about an event was a person. And today, I'm, I'm preaching just to believers today, by the way. So if you're not a follower of Jesus, I'm glad you're here. You can listen in. But really to believers, I want you to think about what are you anticipating most in your life? And is it the return of Christ? Does that even make the list? Because we're talking about someone that we love that we've never seen. Parents, you know what that's like in anticipation of the birth? You love that baby before you even met the baby. But then you get to lay your eyes on the baby. It's a fulfillment of that anticipation. There's a verse in 1 Peter I want to read to you before we get to Mark. In 1 Peter chapter 1, and verse 8, it says, Though you have not seen him, talking about Jesus, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. He's writing to those who realize this Christian thing is not about going to church. It's not about a religion. It's not about rituals and not about doing philanthropic things. It's about a relationship with a person, and that person is coming back. And my question for you is not just do you anticipate that, but are you ready? Are you ready for the return of Jesus Christ? I talked to one young lady in our church this week, and, and she's pregnant and expecting. I said, are you nesting? She said, I'm not nesting. There's just a lot of stuff that has to be done before the baby gets here. <laughs> That's nesting, but okay. 
You're getting ready. And so what we're going to do is we're going to go through this passage of scripture today, and it's going to talk about end times. It's going to talk about some signs. But let me tell you, it's not about having a chart. It's not about knowing the date. What Jesus is concerned about, we're going to see, is whether or not you're ready. And so we're going to see four requirements of readiness for the return of Jesus Christ. And we'll go right into it. Uh, Mark chapter 13, starting in verse 1. What's happening here, for those of you who haven't been with us, is we're on about Wednesday of the last week of the life of Jesus on this earth. When he's doing his earthly ministry, before he goes to the cross, he's going to die on the cross on Friday. It's Wednesday. He gets asked two questions in this passage. It's the longest response we have to any question Jesus has asked in the Bible. So let me decode that. This is important. So look at what happens. As Jesus was leaving the temple, and remember things didn't go well in the temple. He overturned the tables. He's confronting their empty religion. But one of his disciples, and Mark graciously doesn't tell us which one. I think it's probably Peter. One of his disciples said to him, look, teacher, what massive stones, what magnificent buildings. Now, Jesus was not a huge fan of the temple at this stage. But Peter's pointing out the temple. The temple was their national pride. Maybe he's just trying to encourage Jesus, like, hey, what's going on inside is awful, but isn't it a cool building? And then look at verse 2. Verses 1 through 4 really gives the setting here. And then we're going to get into the commands. Jesus says this. Do you see all these great buildings? Replied Jesus. Not one stone here will be left on another. Everyone will be thrown down. And so Jesus is prophesying here that temple is going to be destroyed. And that's a prophecy that actually gets fulfilled within that generation, which may be applicable when we get to verse 30, by the way. Within that generation... Within the next 40 years, about 40 years from the time Jesus says this in 8070, Rome ransacks the temple, destroys the temple. Now the temple, they thought it was invincible, the Jews did. To get an idea of what it was like, think about a big piece of property, 35 acres. It, it, the, whole, the building was 35 acres. It was made of these huge white stones that people say, if you were looking at it from a distance, it looked like a, a mountain with snow on top of it. That's the temple itself. It's 150 feet high in the middle. On the south side, you'll read about in the book of Acts, it's called Solomon's Colonnade. It had a, about 162 columns. And each column was the size that if a grown man stood there with his arms extended and wrapped their arms around it, three grown men could stand around and hug a column. There's 162 of those. It's this huge place. It's gold-plated. It Josephus, the his Jewish historian, said you needed Ray-Bans to look at the building. My interpretation of what he said. But he said it would, you couldn't look. The, the reflection from the sun in your eyes was so bright. It was this glorious, they thought, invincible building. And Jesus says the whole thing's going to be destroyed. Which, if you don't get anything else out of this message, sometimes the things that we hold so central in our lives are way more temporary than we think they are. This was central to Judaism, and Jesus says it's going to be wiped out. And then they ask some questions. And don't forget, as we're going through all these verses, that Jesus is answering these two questions. Look at them, verse 3 and 4. As Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives, so now we're in a different scene. They left the temple. They're on the Mount of Olives. That's across from the temple, about 100 to 150 feet higher. They're looking down at it. He's sitting with four of his buddies, Peter, James, John, and Andrew. And they asked him privately. And so just these five guys together, tell us when these things will happen. We want to know the date. And what will be the sign that they are about to be fulfilled? And we know that they think that this is the end times. This is the end of the age. The way that Matthew talks about it in his parallel account, Matthew, Mark, and Luke all have this account. It's the Mount of Olives, if you want to look it up, you want to Google it or whatever. In Matthew's account, he says it like this. In Matthew chapter 24, in verse 3, as he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately, and they said, Tell us, they said, when will this happen? What is the date? And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? 
The end of the world. So they, they associated the temple being destroyed with the end of the age. They had no paradigm for the fact there was going to be a long parenthesis, a long gap called the church age between the temple being destroyed and Jesus coming back a second time. But we see here they already have this idea that so there's going to be another, maybe they're starting to grab, like you die and you're leaving, that you're going to come back. But what do they want to know? They want to know dates. And they want to know signs. And that's what many of us want to know too, right? Remember when, when I first became a Christian, I remember I, I, got, I got trusted Christ. I wasn't even in a church. I was going to a public high school's Bible study and placed my faith in Jesus. Then I got invited to church. The first church I went to was a real fundamentalist type church. And they had a lot of rules, a lot of control. It's a high control culture, if you've never been in that before. And they had all kinds of charts about the end times. And I remember thinking, how am I going to figure out the ch- which chart is right? Not every chart's the same. Some of them have news headlines associated with them and dates and all this stuff and stuff, verses from the Bible. And, and I felt like I had to figure out the chart. Here's my theory on it, by the way. I think in, as a high control culture, they were trying to control something they have no control over. And so I'm going to share with you some passages of scripture through here. I'm not going to share with you a chart today. Here's why. I'm not sure on some of the charts. And so there's going to be a couple of verses I'm going to come to and I'm going to say to you, I don't, I don't know. I hope that's okay. You don't need me to pretend like I know if I don't know, do you? I hope not. There's a couple of verses. I'm just, I'm not sure. I'll tell you a couple of different ways it could go, but I'm just not sure on some of it. I remember one time uh, as a youth pastor, I played a video as an outreach. It was an end times video. Have you ever seen any of those movies, the Christian movies, where it's like, hey, this is the end, somebody's left. It's always about the rapture. Rapture's a time when b- believers are taken away, and so there'll be like clothes that are just left laying there. And I think as a non-believer, I'd probably watch it and go, so uh, did people disappear, or is everyone like naked running around somewhere, and we haven't found them yet? And there's always like in a plane, by the way, too. There's always an airplane, and the pilot's always a Christian, because his clothes are just sitting there, or the, he's naked somewhere on the plane, like if I'm the, working on the plane. And there's always a pastor that's still there. And I watch it, and I think to myself, I don't want to be that guy. Like, how is he still here? They're kind of scary. And I remember I played this video for the, for the teenagers, invited all these people, bring your friends, I'm going to share the gospel, we're going to play this video. But I was so intimidated by these charts, I said, I need somebody else to like come up and give a chart, and then I'll give the gospel. I remember I was the one sharing the gospel, and they shared the chart, and I'm like, now I'm confused, but I know Jesus wins. <laughs> and so here's what I want you to know, no matter what, at the end of today, Jesus wins. Amen? And what you're going to see in this passage is Jesus isn't concerned with you coming up with a chart. And he's not concerned with you knowing a date. I've seen that before. Lots of people try to predict dates. Jehovah's Witnesses are the worst, by the way. Tried nine times. They're wrong. They just keep going for it, though. You got to give them credit. They just keep swinging. And you got, and the evangelicals have done it, too. I was reading this week that I saw that in 1988, I wasn't even a Christian then, but in 1988, somebody came out with a book, like 88 Reasons Why Jesus is Going to Come Back in 1988. And everybody's all pumped up about that. In <laughs> 1989, I don't think it sold very many. And then there was the Y2K happened. Those of you who remember that. The most recent one that was real popular was a New Age deal, the Mayan calendar, May 12th, 2012. I remember being at the airport with our team that was going to Madagascar. And these people were walking around and they were saying, the world's going to end on May 12th. It was, I don't know, it was like May 5th or something. I don't know what it was. And uh, they were walking around handing all this stuff. And I leaned over to the guy that was leading our team and I shared a verse from this passage. It says, no one knows the date of time. Not even Jesus knows the date of time. I don't think they know. <laughs> I don't think they know this verse is in here. The point's not to come up with a chart or a date. The question is, are you ready? And so you look and you see there's 19 imperatives in verses 5 through 37. We're not going to have 19 points today. We'd be here until like 4 o'clock in the afternoon. But I think we're going to see at least four requirements to be ready. And the first one is this. Don't be deceived. Do not be deceived. Look at verse 5. Jesus responds when they ask for dates and they ask for signs. He says, watch out. 
And those of you who take notes and you're marking your Bible, you're going to see that phrase. Watch out, be aware, see, watch, be alert. It's stated different ways all throughout this passage. Watch out. Watch out for what? That no one deceives you. Well, who's going to deceive us? It says, many will come in my name claiming I am he. And will deceive many. There's going to be a lot of false teachers, is what he's saying. Now, there's multiple things that deceive us we see in the Bible. Some of it's our flesh. We're led away. We can't blame false teachers for all of our stuff. We're just our own sinful desires. We're led away in the things that we want that are not of God, that we pursue. And sometimes we put Bible verses on it. We make it sound like it's as Christians, but it's our own hearts. And then there's the devil, and there's the world system that sucks us in like a vortex. But then there's, there's these teachers that come in, and they, they appeal to all three of those things, our flesh, they, they basically are teaching the same world system that everybody else is teaching, and they're putting Bible verses on it. They twist the scripture. That's what Satan does. He twists the truth. Look at the temptations of Christ. Every time Satan tempts Christ, he's using scriptures. He's using the verses here. Jump off the temple. God will catch you. They twist it. And what you see is there's some characteristics of false teachers in the New Testament. One of them is they're greedy. And so they don't do their ministry for the sake of serving other people. They're actually doing it for service of themselves. You see arrogance is one, one of the characteristics of their lives. They're arrogant folks. If you were to walk with them, they're not godly folks. You see, as if you get to know their life, they're not the real deal. And so they, they won't oftentimes have a lot of people in their lives that actually know them well. And so there's low accountability in their lives. And what they teach, they tell people what they want to hear. And you think about that, and, and we all like to have people around us that tell us what we want to hear. It doesn't matter what's, you could love the word, and you're a, but everybody likes to be affirmed, and you want to be told, ah, oh, that was a good decision, and you should have done that, and yet you're right in this. And even, if we're, and we won't ask you to raise hands today, but if we all were honest in our hearts, a lot of times even when we come to topics that are like Christian topics, and you see there's different, different books out, and they disagree, and when does this happen, why does this, and how about this, and what's the position about Many of us, when we're trying to figure this out, we already know what we want to be true, and we just need to find somebody that we think is smarter than us that's maybe published a book that's already affirmed that, and we go, I'm going with that. That's having what you want to be true be true. It's rare to find genuine folks that are coming to the Scripture and saying, whatever you say, that's what's true. You know what? That's a sign of the end times. There are books in the Christian bookstore that are false teachers, just so you know. So you're just finding somebody that used Bible verses doesn't make it true. Let me read you a passage from Timothy. In 2 Timothy, Paul's telling Timothy, this younger pastor, in chapter 4 and verse 3, for the time is coming when people will not put up with sound doctrine, that's solid teaching, instead to suit their own desires, their itching ears, the ESV says. They'll gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. They won't even put up with sound teaching. I'm going to grab, I'm going to get, I'm going to assemble the people that tell me what I want to hear that make me feel good about me, that give me, give me hope. And you know what Jeremiah says? The false prophets are going, hope, hope. There's no hope with what they're pointing to. They're like broken cisterns that will not hold water. They're giving you false hope. They're leaving you. Don't be, don't be deceived. Don't be led astray. They are false teachers. And you think about it. And I think about when I come to the scripture, there's stuff in here that I wish wasn't true. That I wish I didn't have to teach to you. I wish, I wish that hell wasn't a real place. I w- and I like to think to myself, well, it's just something like religious guys made up to scare people to behave right. And ignore the fact that hell's real. Real people really go there. I, I don't want to be reminded that I'm a sinner. That I'm dead in my trespasses and sins. That apart from God, I'm without hope. I'm without God apart from what Jesus did on the cross for my sins. That my heart is deceptive and wicked. And I can't even trust myself. Who want, That's not a real encouraging word. That I can't even trust me. I, 
I mean, I'm going to know about all the rest of y'all, but I can trust me. They can't even trust me. Oh, man, I'm in trouble. I'd like to think that I'm good, and there's goodness in each one of us. But when I come to the Bible, it tells me things I don't want to hear. Which then gets to when it gets to the good news, and a lot of times we take grace as good news, and we say, and we, but we're really talking about tolerance, and we, we're twisting, we're redefining. Don't be deceived. Like holiness is something God really wants you to pursue. We sang about it, do we pursue it? Don't be deceived. The false teachers, they're going to appeal to not only building their own kingdom, but teaching you how to build yours. But you've been bought at a price. You aren't your own. Why are you building your own kingdom? Your whole life is about the kingdom. Don't be deceived. See, there's lots of deception out there. This world sucks us into its vortex. Our flesh has its own desires. These teachers come in and appeal to it. If it's about building your own kingdom, if it's taking away from the scripture, I heard one false teacher this week. I'm not even going to mention his name because he's already popular enough. But he's talking about a topic that's a hot topic in our time. So you know the problem with the church is they keep using the Bible and it's the letters from 2,000 years ago and they're making themselves irrelevant. It's clear what's happening. You just got a teacher that's ever taken you away from the scriptures, that's a false teacher. He says, be, don't be deceived, but don't just not be deceived. Don't be distracted. Look at verses 7 and 8. Verse 7. When you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. Such things must happen, but the end is still to come. That's not a sign of the end. Okay, so the next time there's a war, whoever it's with, North Korea, China, Russia, the Middle East, wherever the war happens, there will be Christians. It will be on TV. They will come out and say, this is, this is the sign. Here's why. And here's some other news headlines. We've got these helicopters. They look like locusts. Read this verse in Revelation. Da, da, da. This is not a sign of the end. Wars, rumors of wars, always been happening. Part of sinfulness. Part of the broken world that we live in. That is not a sign. Of the, don't be distracted by that. It's like when I'm driving in my car and I have my GPS on. It usually happens in Cary, by the way. I don't know if you're familiar with the road systems in Cary. But I'll be driving, and I'm listening. I'm like on the path. I'm, I'm going to where I need to get to. I'm focused. And then all of a sudden, it'll come on, and it'll be like, what's that sausage road that's down there? I always chuckle when I hear that one. But it's like a Jones sausage or Franklin sausage, something down there. And, and then there'll be like, uh, or if you exit 293, have you ever gotten off on that one? That's probably the worst for this. It'll be like, exit what, 293 slash route one slash 64 slash you're going to carry slash your grandma's house around the corner slash, you know, Bojangles slash. It's like got all this, it's like slash, slash, slash. And then by the time it's done, I'm like, what way am I turning? Like I forgot what's happening now. There's all this noise and it like distracts me from what I, I knew what I was doing. And it's why I'm using this. And we get so easily distracted, Christians. Let me say a little aside here. There's lots of things that distract us. Materialism, our sinful desire, all kinds of things distract us. But can I just pause and say this? Politics, we all see each other's social media, so it's not a secret who I'm talking to today. Can you please stop? Like, I'm seriously asking you, on behalf of Christianity, please stop. Because I don't know if you know this or not, but there are people in this room that believe in Jesus, love Jesus, and don't agree with you. And you're causing problems. In this church, in the church, there are marriages that are struggling because of political views. Friendships having a hard time. People that have not just left this church, left the church because of things that are getting posted. And so let me ask you this question. If you lived in London, but you were a U.S. citizen, how much would you care about their politics? It would matter impacts your life, impacts people around you. I'm not saying that doesn't matter. We should speak up for the unborn. There are relevant issues. We should be engaged as believers. 
but you got a different mission. And so if you were in London and the U.S. politics, you were in Canada, how much do you care about Canada? What, who's even, what's going on over there? Do you even care? Your citizenship isn't here. Not just in America, but on this earth. Philippians chapter 3 and verse 20. Treat it like that. It matters, but you've got a more important mission. Don't get distracted. And don't get distracted by the sin. Don't get distracted by all this stuff, the shiny things, the little kid illustration. You don't get distracted by what's going on in social media. Don't get, when, when your world is ending, is not necessarily a sign that the world is ending. There's going to be wars, rumors of wars. He goes on and he says there'll be natural disasters, the next earthquake that happens, when, when there's a tsunami. This is, it's part of the problem of this broken, sinful place. And he says, and these famines, you think about what's happening in Madagascar, verse 8. Nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. These are earthquakes, there will be earthquakes in various places and famines. These are the beginning of birth pains. It's not the birth. We're in this time. We are in this process. These are the last days. But it's not yet, he said. And then he gives the next one. Don't be distracted. Don't be deceived. The first two are negative. The next two are positive. Be faithful, verse 9. Verses 9 through 13 talk about our faithfulness. Be faithful. You must be on your guard. And so I could have made the point, be on your guard. But you start to unpack what it says in verses 9 through 13, and you see it's talking about faithfulness. Be on your guard. And then he goes to talk about persecution. You'll be handed over to the local councils and flogged in the synagogues, and on account of me, you will stand before governors and kings as witnesses to them. And you think about who he's talking to here with Peter and John and James and Andrew. And then go read the book of Acts. Everything that's said in verse 9 happened in the book of Acts. Be faithful, because you're going to get, it is going to happen. You're going to handle, there's going to be persecution. And a lot of times the people that are persecuting think that by persecution they're going to stop Christianity. But what we've seen historically is the best way to stop Christianity is to back off and just let them become real comfortable and then get into cruise control and they're kind of just lethargic in their Christianity. And so if you follow Christianity historically, and you see how it started in Jerusalem, then it moves, eventually it comes to North America, and then eventually it moves. Where's the heart of? Where are things? Where's God at work? I'm not saying that God's not doing anything here in America, but in comparison to other places where there's persecution, it's not the same. We forget our mission. We get distracted. We are deceived. Be faithful. There's going to be persecution. And the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. And so you read Acts, and you see Peter get flogged. And he counts it, he rejoices that he's so identified with the name of Jesus that they would treat him the same way they treated his Savior. Which another thing about false teachers, by the way, there's no room usually in their theology for suffering that's not your fault. So there's no room for Jesus. Because he was without sin, and he was the suffering servant. And if you follow him, there'll be persecution in your life. Matthew chapter 10, 5, verse 10. Blessed are the persecuted. Why? Because it, you're, you're being faithful. And you look at the book of Acts, and you see they stand before councils. They do these things. But what did Jesus say in Acts chapter 1, verse 8? You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the uttermost parts of the world. And what happens in the first seven chapters of the book of Acts is they've all stayed right there in Jerusalem. They're, they're willing to stay and be comfortable. But then in Acts chapter 7, at the very end, Stephen's the first martyr. He gets killed, and the Christians get scared, and so they spread out. And guess what happens in the rest of the book of Acts? And they go to Judea and Samaria. And then at the end of the book, they're in Rome, the uttermost part of the world at that time. And so he uses that, but be faithful. And he talks about how it'll go and what we need to do in verse 10. The mission, don't forget the mission. 
And the gospel must first be preached to all nations. What is our commission? We're going to get a Matthew. Go make disciples of all nations. Take the gospel everywhere. Everywhere you go, you've got Jesus with you. He's changed your life. Tell him your story. That's the good news. That is the gospel. It's got to go everywhere. It says, whenever you're arrested and brought to trial, do not worry. There's a command for you. I told you there's a bunch of them in here. Do not worry. Do not be anxious, some of your translations say, beforehand about what you will say. Be faithful. You can't be faithful and fearful. Don't worry. Don't be afraid. Why, though? Why wouldn't I? It's not just like buck up and be courageous. It's just say whatever is given to you at the time. For it's not you speaking, but the Holy Spirit. In other words, the Spirit's gonna, you have the Spirit in you. The Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead is living in you. He will give you the words to say. It's not an excuse if you're teaching one of our Sunday school classes to not prepare. In persecution, he's saying, I'm going to be with you. When you're being faithful and you're preaching the gospel, and then you get persecuted, you don't have to plan out how this is going to go. You, I'm going to be with you. Don't be afraid. Be faithful. In other words, the fa- you just keep walking with me, and I'll actually complete the faithfulness. He who began a good work in you will be faith. His faithfulness is going to keep us faithful. And so some of you think about that. What would you do? Head's going to get chopped off. Going to get crucified. And I was thinking about this week, this passage. Peter is sitting here. And you know what happens with Peter? Do you know his whole story? He's going through the Bible. He denies Jesus three times. We'll come up on that here pretty soon. And Mark, he's the one who said, I would never deny you. So if he was sitting here today, he'd be like, I'm in. I got it. He denies Jesus to a little girl. She's scared. And then he feels like he's not worthy. He goes back to his old job as a fisherman. John chapter 21, Jesus calls him. So he Throw your nets on the other side. You've been trying to do this on your own. It's not working. Throw your nets on the other side. Catch a whole bunch of fish. And then they realize it's Jesus. Peter jumps out of the boat, and his buddies are like, hey, you want to help us with these fish? And he's going up to the shore. And when they get there, Jesus already has fish, which I think is an interesting part of the passage. And Jesus is making them breakfast. And then he restores Peter. He denied Jesus three times. Three times he asked Peter, do you love me? He said, yeah. You know everything. You know I love you. He says, and you go feed my sheep. Be faithful. Let me, yeah, then be faithful. Keep feeding my sheep. And then he gets confused about some stuff. And Jesus says, you just follow me. You keep your eyes on me. Don't get distracted. Fix your eyes on the author and perfecter of your faith. Don't be distracted by all this stuff. Your circumstances, what's going on in your life, the shiny stuff, the signs of the time. You just keep focused on me. And then he restores them and he tells them, he tells them he's going to be crucified in John chapter 21. You can read it yourself. And about 30 years after that passage on the beach, Peter is being pursued by Nero, who hates Christians and wants to kill Christians. And he wants to stay there and be faithful, but some believers talk him into trying to leave town. And tradition tells us what happens is he went to leave town, and he saw Jesus walking in the other direction at the gate, the city gate. And he said, what are you doing here? And Jesus said back to him, I've come to be crucified again. Which Peter took as a sign that it was time for what he had told him in John chapter 21. It's time for you to be crucified, Peter. And so Peter went back into the town. He was arrested by the Romans, and they told him they were going to crucify him. And he just asked one request. I'm not worthy to be crucified the way that my Savior was crucified. Please crucify me upside down. And they granted his request. And Jesus was with him. Jesus didn't have to be crucified again. He had died for the sins of the world. He was, a, he was assuring, encouraging Peter, I'll be with you in your crucifixion. I'll be with you. Be faithful. And some of you might be here and you're thinking to yourself, would I, could I? I mean, it's so foreign to the American culture to like get crucified or have your head cut off for the gospel. Would you? Now let me tell you something. One, you don't have to answer that today. You be faithful today. God's doing a work in your heart today. He will be faithful. He is faithful 
to do the work that he began in you, and he will complete that work. You walk faithfully today. Don't be distracted. Don't be deceived. You've got a mission. Stay on the mission. Be faithful to sharing the gospel, verse 10. Be faithful to encouraging other believers. Be faithful to cultivating your own relationship with Jesus and your time in the word and your time with him and your time in prayer. Be faithful, and he'll be with you. Don't worry. Don't worry about all that stuff. I don't have enough faith for what's going to happen in my life 30 years from now. In 30 years, I will have enough faith for that day. You walk faithfully today, and you keep doing that, and you'll get to verse 13. Look what verse 13 says. Talk about being faithful. Every, or he talks about brothers and sisters uh, being betrayed and how it's going to get difficult. It's not just about leaders. He says in verse 12, brother will betray brother to death. Father his child. Children will rebel against their parents and have them put to death. Everyone will hate you because of me, but the one who stands firm to the end will be saved. Be faithful. What he's saying here is not you'll earn your salvation by being faithful to the end. He's saying, no, the people that are legitimately have a relationship with me, they will be faithful to the end, and you'll know. Be faithful. And then verses 14 through 23, I'm going to read all the verses. I'll make a comment here. There's a bunch of them. Let me tell you what it says. It's going to be awful at the end. Verse 14, when you see the abomination that causes desolation, standing where it does not belong, let the reader understand. The phrase, let the reader understand, is probably pointing people back to the book of Daniel where the abomination of desolation is first mentioned. This is one of those verses where people, different Christians disagree on what this means. Is it talking about what Daniel was prophesying and then was fulfilled and and it's written about in the book of Maccabees, a non-biblical book that's written between the New Testament and the the Old Testament where there was a guy that was, um, they set up a temple to Zeus or they set up an altar to Zeus within the temple and they were sacrificing pigs on it. So an abomination to God that caused Jews to flee. Abomination of desolation. Or was it what happened in AD 70? Things get so bad in AD 70, some people read that that's what they're talking about here and in verse 30 when it says that these things will happen during this generation, that's what it's talking about. Let me tell you how bad it got in AD 70 before I read the next verses. In AD 70, when the Romans were destroying the temple, it got so bad, Jews were killing each other, there was infighting going on, there was a famine that was so bad They were eating each other. How bad do things have to be that you want to eat another person? It's awful. But I think when we get to verse 19, it's talking about something worse than that. Look at it. It says in verse 13, the abomination of desolation. Let the reader understand. Let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let no one on the housetop go down or enter the house to take anything out. Let no one in the field go back to get their cloak. You don't have time for that. How dreadful it will be in those days for pregnant women and nursing mothers. Pray that this will not take place in winter, because that will just make it worse. Verse 19, because those will be the days of distress, and here's the verse, unequaled from the beginning when God created the world until now, and never to be equaled again. Think about, even if he's just talking about until, like not now, our now, but now, their now, the flood, it's going to be worse than the flood. It's going to be worse than when they were sacrificing babies to the god Moloch. Human sacrifices. It's going to be worse than that. That's why I think it's, I think it's future. Some people think it's 80-70. I don't know. In verse 20. If the Lord had not cut short those days, no one would survive. But for the sake of the elect whom he has chosen, those that are believers, he has shortened them. It's mercy. At that time, if anyone says to you, look, here is the Messiah, or look, here he is, do not believe it. For false messiahs and false prophets will appear and perform signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, it's not possible, but if possible, even the elect. So be on your guard, be faithful, pay attention, 
I've told you everything ahead of time. That's God's mercy. But it's going to be terrible. Think about the worst thing that you've ever seen. I've seen bad stuff, but I think many of us have probably saw, if you were alive at the time, 9-11, planes flew into the building. Do you remember seeing people jumping from the building? And I remember thinking to myself, how bad is it inside that jumping is a better option? And he says in verse 19, we've never seen anything like what's going to happen. It's going to be bad. And I don't know if it's referring to 8070 or if it's future. I think it's future. And I'm going to tell you why I think it's future. And I'm going to give you some verses. You can jot these down for your own study later. But there's some things that I think haven't happened yet. In the book of Revelation, it says this. We've had earthquakes. We haven't had an earthquake like Revelation chapter 6 and verses 12 through 17, I don't think. It devastates the whole earth. In Revelation chapter 8 and verses 6 through 7, we've had hail and there's been fires. But there's going to be hail and fire that consumes a third of the earth's vegetation. Talk about famine. A third of the ocean will be turned to blood, Revelation 8, 8 through 9. A third of the fresh water will be poisoned. Think about what that will do to our population. Revelation 8, 10 through 11. A third of the sun, moon, and stars will be darkened, Revelation 8, 12. There's going to be such grief and terror, Revelation 9, 1 through 12, that it says there that people will want to die but death will flee from them. A third of the earth's population will be killed. Revelation 9, 13 through 21. If that were to happen today, we have about 7 billion people. We're talking about billions of people will be killed. I don't think that's happened yet. A great earthquake that will happen that will kill 7,000 people at once. Revelation 11, verse 13. Darkness will engulf the world. Revelation 16, 10 through 11. You think, oh, they just turned the lights out. No, when you read that passage, it says that people were gnawing their tongues because the anguish was so bad of the darkness. Just darkness. The Euphrates will dry up. Revelation 16, verse 12. There'll be a final global earthquake in Revelation chapter 16, verses 17 through 21, that will shake the earth so much that it changes the map. It's going to be terrible. And that's why I think verse 24 is the sharpest contrast in all of the New Testament. But, sharp contrast, but, verse 24 through 27, look what it says. In those days, following that distress... The sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. Total darkness. Have you ever experienced total darkness? I mean, not just like, let's turn the lights off in here. I mean, so dark, you can't see the hand. You can feel it. I remember one time being in a cave in West Virginia and we were going through this cave and we had these little lamps on our forehead. We turned these lamps off and I could feel the darkness. If people didn't keep talking, it was like you sensed the isolation. It's total darkness. The stars will fall from the sky. And the heavenly bodies will be shaken. So not just an earthquake, the heavens will have an earthquake. In verse 26, at that time people will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. We've talked about multiple times through the book of Mark, this, re- this reference back to Daniel chapter 7. The Son of Man approaching the Ancient of Days and receiving glory and honor and power and all dominion and his kingdom will never end. This is what it's talking about. This is, I asked you last time we talked about, what do you think that looks like? Here's what it looks like. Total darkness, and then he comes. Now, we have a picture of Jesus. We oftentimes talk about his earthly life. This humble servant. He comes in on a donkey, the triumphal entry. He's washing feet. He gets mocked. He's the suffering servant when he comes the first time. When he comes the second time, he's the conquering king. And some of you might not like that image, by the way. 
He comes on a white horse. In 2 Thessalonians, it talks about in 2 Thessalonians uh, chapter 1, verses 7 and 8, it says this, When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven and his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus, he comes to judge. He comes on a horse. Revelation chapter 1, verse 7, his eyes are blazing like fire. There's a glory that surrounds him. His tongue is a sword. He's got tattoos. Those of you who don't like tattoos, Jesus is tatted up. He comes in. He's got tattoos. He's wearing a robe. The robe says it's been dipped in blood. That's not his blood. That's his enemy's blood. He's wiped them out. Some of you might like this picture of Jesus. You can surround yourself with itching ears, but what does the Bible say? He comes in glory. And then it says, Why? And he will send his angels and gather his elect, believers, from the four winds. That's everywhere. Every tribe, tongue, nation, wherever they're at. From the ends of the earth to the ends of heavens. Now learn this lesson. Be faithful. But here's the last lesson, the fourth lesson. Be alert. And he's going to tell, share two parables about alertness. The last five verses of this passage, four times he gives the same command. Stay awake. Be alert. Be aware. It's phrased different in different translations. It's the same thing. Be awake. Verse 28. Now learn this lesson from the fig tree. As soon as the twigs get tender and its leaves come out, you know the summer is near. So when these things happen, uh, when the sky gets totally dark and Jesus comes and he is shaking, you're not going to miss that. The question is, are you ready? Verse 29. Even so, when you see these things happening, you know that it is near, right at the door. And verse 30. Here's a verse I don't know. This is the answer. Truly I tell you, this generation will certainly not pass away until all these things have happened. What generation? And some people think that what he's talking about here is the the generation that he was talking to at that moment. Peter and James, John and Andrew, those Jews, and within 40 years, the temple will be destroyed. And so then it was fulfilled. That generation, some people think it's talking about future and it's talking about the last generation of Jews that when these terrible things start to happen. And verse 19, it's worse than anything that's ever happened on the earth. And all the stuff that we read from Revelation is happening from the time that that starts to the time that Jesus appears will be a short period of time. I tend to think it's the latter. I don't know. But verse 31, he says this, and here's that lesson again. Heaven and earth will pass away. All these things that we think are so important, but my words will never pass away. So what are you going to go to? Verse 32, but about that day and hour, and here's why we know it's not May 12, 2012. No one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. And so what do we do? We well, don't need a date. Verse 33, be on guard. Be alert. Be alert. You do not know when the time will come. It's like a man going away. He leaves his house and puts his servants in charge, each one with an assigned task. And he tells the one at the door, keep watch, be alert. Therefore, keep watch. See, there's a bunch of commands here. Some of them are the same thing. Be alert, keep watch. Well, maybe that was just a story. No, keep watch. Because you don't know when the owner of the house will come back. Whether in the evening or at midnight or when the rooster crows or at dawn. Some unexpected time. Verse 36. If he comes suddenly, do not let him find you sleeping. What I say to you, these four guys, I say to everyone. So this applies to us. Watch. In case you missed it the first three times I commanded it, wake up. Be alert. Do you ever wake up? And I did it this morning, actually. 
and maybe your alarm clock goes off and you're just in such a deep sleep that it throw, you jump out of bed and you don't know what day it is or what's happening. Or you wake up before your alarm clock and you're like, whoa, is it going to go off? Did I miss it? That's what happened to me today. Usually, it can even be on like a Tuesday. If I wake up and I don't know what's happening, it's like, am I supposed to preach in a couple minutes? <laughs> I'm like afraid that y'all are sitting here and I just woke up. That's what happened. <laughs> it's funny in the moment to be that groggy and that out of it. It's not funny at four o'clock in the afternoon if you're still that way. Some of my friends know that I'm, I'm working on changing my schedule. I have a, a schedule right now on the, on the way I prepare for messages. That I am saying I'm really late on Thursday nights. And Friday's the day that I take off to hang out with the family. On Thursday nights, a lot of times it'll be 2 o'clock, 3 o'clock, sometimes later in the morning. And then the kids get off to school at like 7, 30, 8 o'clock. And so sometimes I only get like 3 or 4 hours of sleep. And I'm like that all day on Friday then. I'm kind of lethargic. But about 4 weeks ago, I was driving in the car. Going to carry, by the way. <laughs> so I already don't know what I'm doing. And I started dozing off driving. And I realized, uh-oh, that's a problem. Can I tell you something about the church in America? We have fallen asleep at the wheel. And when you look at the metaphor for sleeping in the New Testament, it's talking about a spiritual dullness. You're not aware of what's happening around you. And, and I, I read this passage and I think about us and there's a church, that Jesus talks to the seven churches in Revelation chapters 2 and 3 and, and there's one in chapter 3, the church of Sardis and it says, you have this reputation of being alive but you're dead. And then, but he said, it's like there's hope. He says, wake up! You gotta repent. You gotta turn back. Wake up. If you don't wake up, he says, then I'm gonna come against you when I come back. Wake up. You're not ready. You think you're ready. You're not ready. Wake up. And so I say to us, as, as this, we can't control every church around America, but what's happening on our watch at this place? Because if this is your church, you're responsible for that. What? We sing holy, holy, holy. How many of us are really seeking holiness? Or is that like something for the Puritans? That's like a long time. Just grace and tolerance and we twist the scriptures. Don't be deceived. Don't be distracted. Wake up! Amen. We taught, we as a generation laugh at things that are an abomination to God. Wake up! We don't want to call sin, sin, because it might hurt someone's feelings. You're sending them to hell. Wake up! We've got to wake up. We've got to wake up, not just in sin. We need a sensitivity to sin. We do need that. We need to wake up in our own relationship with Christ. We just, we, some of us, we trust Christ. We just kind of cruise through the motions. We're no spiritual disciplines. Around. It's all God. It's all God. You're, you've exchanged God's sovereignty for your own passivity. You need to be in the Word. You need to be praying. You need to be, where the battle take, did you listen to last week's message? The battle's on your knees. Wake up. It's not a formality. God, we're good, right? God, touch base today. There's a battle taking place. Don't miss it. Wake up. Things happen in your home. Satan wants to destroy your home, wants to destroy your marriage, wants to destroy your family, wants to rob you of the life that God has for you. Do you even see it happening? Wake up. We're so worried about arguing about what's this and that and who likes this team and what about this political view? And Oh yeah, you're not even looking at the goal or the target. Wake up. Some of you are not believers. And you think, oh, this stuff, yeah, that's just fantasy. It's in the Bible. The Bible talks about your view of that. Your, eyes, you've been, your mind has been darkened. You've been deceived by the enemy. Wake up. Jesus has come to give you a free gift, an eternal life. He paid for it on the cross for you, but you've got to place your faith in him, and he'll take over your life. Wake up. And he's coming back, and it could happen right now. 
wake up. Because if you were having a baby, you'd get ready. He's coming back. And we love him. We haven't seen him. It's going to be a glorious day for those of us who are in right relationship with him. It's going to be dreadful for everyone else. Wake up. Father, we come before you today and we are grateful that you loved us so much that you sent your son Jesus. We are grateful. We want you to come back, but we're grateful you've waited. Some of us wouldn't have placed our faith in you had you come months ago, years ago. And you are patient. We know what you tell us in Peter. You want everyone to be saved. You're patient. Your promise is not slow. We think it's slow, but you are patient. A day is like a thousand years. A thousand years is like a day. And you're waiting for more people to repent. If there's someone here that needs to repent, God, I pray right now would be the moment you'd wake them up spiritually, bring them out of a spiritual comatose. Don't let us play games and think that we're okay when we're not okay. And those of us who have been asleep at the wheel, God, wake us up. We still got time. We've got a mission. Help us be faithful to you, faithful to encouraging other believers, faithful to leading people to you. God, help us to be faithful and wake us up. It's in Jesus' name I pray.